you guys would pray with me. Our Father, God, you who made us, you who knit us together in our mother's womb, God, you who know when we sit and when we rise, you who know the word on our lips before it even comes out of our mouth. Lord, we thank you that you are here. God, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. God, and I just pray that in these next few minutes, you would silence every voice and every ear, every mind and every heart that is not of you. Lord, the people in this room, they don't need to hear from me. God, they don't need to be thinking about their class or spring break or anything like that. Right now, they need to hear from the God who made them, who knows them better than they know themselves. So Lord, I pray that by your grace in these next few minutes, you would speak under the power of your word and overcome the insufficiencies of the one speaking. Lord, speak because we, your children, your servants are listening. Amen. I'm going to be reading the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2, if you would like to follow along with me. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right after I graduated college, I spent two months in Konkan, Thailand, sharing the gospel with college students there. And on my first day, I was in kind of their cafeteria food court, and I found an open chair across the table from a guy named Kung. Kung asked me why I had come all the way to Thailand, and he told me that he had never spoken to a white person before. He also told me that he had never heard of the name of Jesus. Well, we struck up a friendship and he started hanging around our Thai believer friends. He started coming to church and pretty soon he got involved in a Bible study with the Thai pastor. And I was shocked because this was utterly the opposite of what I'd been told to expect. And when I asked him what attracted him to the church and Christianity, he told me, I've never seen a group of people so diverse. American and Thai, young and old, art majors and science majors, rich and poor, all here together loving each other so much. And I couldn't explain it, so I had to figure out what was going on. 
And when you look at the Philippian church here, we see a group of people that's united by something that the world doesn't know how to explain. They met in Lydia's house. Lydia is a wealthy female entrepreneur, a self-made woman. The church is attended by a blue-collar Philippian jailer and his family. It's also attended by a girl who, until very recently, was a slave and possessed by a demon. And yet it was a church of great love and great diversity. And the world must have looked upon them with awe, just as my friend Kung looked at the Thai church. You see, because there's something about the gospel of Christ that is so powerful that it unites us across anything that would divide our world. It's as though our differences disappear, but we don't become uniform. It's just the things that would divide the people on the outside of these walls, things like our races, our classes, our political ideology, our backgrounds, our educations, our interests and abilities are made infinitely less important than that which unites us together. So when Paul says here in verse one, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, he isn't actually doubting that the Philippians had these things. Instead, the word if here is a little bit closer to the word since, since you have been encouraged in Christ, since you have comfort from love, Paul urges them, complete my joy by being so united that the world can, cannot explain you. So my question to you tonight is how do we get to the place where what unites us speaks louder to the world than those things that would divide us? And how do we get that kind of unity? How can people who otherwise have so little in common truly grow to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind? Well, Paul shows us right here in verses three and four. Let's keep reading. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You guys got it? How do we do it? In humility, you count others more significant than yourselves. Sermon over. Thank you guys for coming. I hope your life has been changed. Let's take a look at verse four here. The word interests in your Bible it's not actually in the original manuscript here. All that Paul wrote is that not looking out for your own something, but also others something. Now, why would Paul do that? I think Paul is very purposefully leaving it open-ended so that we would fill in the blanks here wherever they would apply. He's saying the first key to Christian unity is that each of you, you look not only to your own grades, to your own happiness, to your own health, to your own finances, to your own reputation. Don't just dream about that. Don't just pray about that. Don't just work really hard for that. But dream, plan, work, and pray for the education, for the happiness, for the wealth, for the well-being and reputation of others alongside your own. Okay, but we're still kind of in a pretty vague territory here, right? So how much then are we to actually be dreaming and working for the interests of others. Well, we don't get specifics, but we get a hint back in verse three. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Which kind of begs the question, right? Okay, Paul, who should I count more significant than myself? 
others. But what if they're totally undeserving? What if they've been terrible to me? I can almost, I hope this isn't sacrilege to say this. I can almost imagine Paul here saying, you know, if I wanted to write qualifiers on this, I already had the pen in my hand. I could have done it, but I didn't do it. And then I imagine him pointing us back to Luke chapter 10 when a lawyer asked Jesus a very similar question. Starting in verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You guys may know this, but Jesus proceeds to tell him the story of the Good Samaritan. So who is your neighbor? Jesus says, even your enemy. How much should I risk in helping him? However much it actually requires for him to be rescued. Okay, how much time and money should I spend here? However much it takes. So who should you count more significant than yourself? And Paul echoes straight back at us and he says, others, everyone. When we truly start to understand Paul's call here, we're no longer shocked that our churches don't reflect the kind of unity that he's talking about, right? Because the primary obstacle to our unity is not our legitimate differences, but it's found here in verse two or chapter two, verse three, this word conceit, this word kenodoxia, what the King, King James translate, which I think is pretty awesome, as vainglory. Isn't that just a great word? Can we all say that together? Vainglory? I thought we were going to say it together. You just left me back on an island by myself. Vainglory? Well done. This word, kenodoxia, vainglory, it means empty glory or groundless pride. So what is Paul saying is the biggest problem in our Christian community? Why aren't there non-Christians flooding into these doors wondering what's going on in our midst? Paul says it's your pride. It's my pride. Okay, I have something to confess. Uh, clearly, I am the college pastor here at this church, so I know that I'm not supposed to, but I really like Kanye. I listened to Watch the Throne on repeat for about two years. Power is always my first song on the treadmill or on a run. Just gets you in that good rhythm going. You know what I'm talking about? No, that's fine. And you may hate Kanye, which clearly almost all of you do. But Kanye is crazy talented. I mean, you have to be crazy talented to get paid half a million dollars every time you step onto a stage, right? Some people clearly like Kanye. But lots and lots and lots of people don't like Kanye. And why don't they like Kanye? Because he says things like this. Jay-Z is Quelly's favorite rapper. 50 is Eminem's. I'm my favorite rapper. This one's my favorite. I had a list of about 15 and I had to shuck it down to two. Just try to track with me for a second. I am the number one most impactful artist of our generation. I am Shakespeare in the flesh, Walt Disney, Nike, Google, 
I have no idea where he's going at that point. And I'm not, I'm not hating on Kanye, okay? Clearly, I think Kanye's a big deal. He sold tens of millions of records, a lot more than anyone that I know is going to. But it's like when a microphone is put in front of his face, right? It's almost like he has to constantly reassure himself by telling us how big of a deal he is, that he's not insignificant, that he does matter. Last year, I finished this really fascinating book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Maybe you've heard me talk about it before. But Becker says that one of our biggest needs that we have as human beings is to feel secure in our self-esteem. He says that all of us have this need, but what's really funny about kids is that they can't hide it. So kids, they can't stand to see someone else have more than them, right? Why does, why does he have three cars when I only have two cars? Or why does he get the blue car and I have to have this stinky purple car? Or not being chosen. I wanted to be the one to open the door. I wanted to be the one to throw away the trash. Or not having something that someone else has. But I wanted to play with a magic wand. No, you were reading a book on the couch covered up in covers on the other side of the room. In case this wasn't clear, all of these are examples from my house this week. (laughs) Kids have no idea how to shut off the valve from their emotions to their mouths, right? You always know where you stand with a child. And Becker says that we as parents, we work really hard to kind of suppress this vain glory, this selfishness in our kids so they grow up and they learn how to function in society. So they have friends and so I assume, I hope, People like me can avoid really awkward parent-teacher conferences later in life. But Becker says that if we think that as adults, because we're not throwing tantrums on the floor when we don't get our way, that we've somehow conquered this fight, we're wrong. That on the inside, that childlike demand to be recognized, our inner Kanye's, if you will, are raging. Each and every one of us, all of the time, we're evaluating how we stack up And we're basing our self-worth on how we compare to others. Now, if you pick up just about any economics textbook, you will find this study. But I got this out of William A. McEachern's Economics and Introduction, okay? This study is fascinating. It's a very simple would you rather, okay? Option A, would you rather earn $50,000 a year while your friends and neighbors make $25,000? Or B, would you rather make $100,000 a year while your friends and neighbors make $250,000 a year, assuming that all of your expenses stay the same? Every time this study is done, people overwhelmingly choose option A, that they would rather make more money than others around them than to actually have more money. Why? This is totally insane, right? It's because our self-worth is, get this, it's purely relative. It's purely based on how we compare ourselves to people around us. And I I want you to hear the way that C.S. Lewis explains it in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen closely. This is really good. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. It is the pleasure of being above the rest. Wow. 
Do you know that one of the deadliest places where we play this comparison game is right here in the church, right in the spiritual realm? You can sit in a small group accountability and start to judge yourself saying, hey, she didn't read her Bible at all this week. I read it three times. Oh man, I've never confessed that sin before. That guy is totally jacked up. I know that I'm pretty jacked up, but at least I'm not as jacked up as that guy. Or we start patting ourselves on the back because we spent our Saturday helping the homeless instead of down at the bar with our friends. Or we look down on someone else's answer who is a little less theologically precise than ours. Or maybe someone whose worship looks a little too rigid and formal. Maybe their heart's not really engaged. Or maybe it looks a little too showy, like they're just playing for everybody around. And all of the while, we can be subtly tallying pride points in the name of Jesus. And I know that there's probably a couple of you guys in this room, maybe a lot of you who are thinking, man, I hear what you're saying, but not me, Matt. I mean, honestly, I don't really think that much of myself. I'm not usually the first person that's asked to parties. I'm, I'm not very good at sports. I'm not the one that the teacher usually calls on. There are a lot of kids smarter than me in my classes, and honestly, I don't know the Bible that well, so I usually shut up in small groups. But I want you to see something really important, okay? Because the opposite of what we normally think of as pride, thinking highly of yourself, isn't suddenly thinking little of yourself. Martin Luther once described sin as a man curved in on himself, focused on himself, if you will. And the person who has no self-confidence is just as focused on himself as the person who has loads of self-confidence. That person is spending just as much time comparing themselves to others. Do you see? Insecurity is really just thwarted pride. And let me put this just a different way. The only real difference between someone who's arrogant and someone who's totally insecure is that the person who's insecure is just trailing at halftime. So while they look like opposites, they're actually two sides of the same coin. They're both part of this quest for vainglory. They're both part of this groundless search for pride by comparing ourselves to others. I hope that you see how deadly this is, but pride isn't simply about comparison, right? Pride is actually the underlying root of each and every sin. Let me give you an example. I meet with college students all the time who tell me that they're struggling with anxiety. They're anxious about this massive test that's coming up, or they're anxious that they have to get this internship in order to have the job that they want when they graduate, or they're anxious about how this relationship's gonna go, or how this date party's gonna go. They're anxious about how much time they'll get on the field the next season. But let's just talk about this for a second and break it down. Why would you really be anxious? Okay, you're anxious because you don't really know what's gonna happen and what might happen you might not like, right? But what do you really think in that situation would make you feel less anxious? Knowing what was going to happen or being able to control what was going to happen. But it's not under your control and it never has been and it never will be. And you can't know the future, but praise God that it's under his perfect, loving, fatherly, absolutely sovereign control. Amen. And all of the paths of the Lord, Psalm 25:10 says, are steadfast love and righteousness. 
He has promised that he's never going to leave you and he's never going to forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.6. He knows all of your needs and promised to supply them. Philippians 4.19. He promised that all things, every last thing that happens to you, every second of your life is meant for your absolute very best perfect good, Romans 8, 28, and that he knows infinitely better than you do what is actually the best for you. So why worry? What is anxiety? It's a state of mind that ultimately says, God, I think I can trust myself more than I can trust you. I think that my ways are better than your ways. I would rather have things in my control than yours. In other words, the root of anxiety, it's pride. But it's not just anxiety, right? The root of envy is pride. Thinking that you deserve what someone else has or that God should have somehow distributed things differently. The root of lust is pride. Thinking that you know better than God how to use his gifts or that you know better than God what would give you pleasure or thinking that someone else, a soul of absolutely infinite worth, exists for your enjoyment. There is pride that underlies racism and laziness and selfishness and discontentment and judgmentalism. Pride is ultimately the sense of entitlement, the sense of putting yourself in place as king and saying, you world, you God, you owe me. And it's in all of us. And pride is the sin that cast Satan out from heaven. It was pride that led Adam and Eve to presume that God's commands were subject to their discretion. And pride is, as Jonathan Edwards famously wrote, it's the worst viper in your heart and in mine. It is the vice, catch this, that will undo all of your virtue. After all, what good is courage that can't acknowledge its needs for help? What good is faithfulness if it's performed in a joyless duty or in self-righteousness? If you are proud, then no matter how outwardly moral your actions, your heart is slowly going to grow cold to the gospel itself. You will turn more and more towards your own strength, towards your own self-sufficiency. And eventually, whether you realize it or not, and whether you think so or not, you will have turned away from God altogether because you will have decided in your heart of hearts that you don't need him. And you will have shown that you, in fact, never knew him. And my greatest fear tonight, my greatest fear is that some of you in this room, myself included, might think, that's not going to be me. That couldn't possibly be me. Listen to James 4, 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, if you are proud, the Bible says that God Almighty himself has declared himself against you. And there is nothing worse in the universe than that. Jeremiah 50, 30, 31 puts it even more bluntly. Behold, I'm against you, O proud one, declares the Lord. But listen again to the back end of this verse. He gives grace to the humble. If you are humble, if you get humility, the Bible says that God is for you and there is nothing in the universe better than that. James is saying here that if you get humility, you get literally everything. And if you don't have humility, you get nothing. So just as pride is the root of all vice, so humility is the root of all virtue. No one less than the great St. Augustine said this. He said, 
If you should ask me, what are the ways of God? I would tell you that the first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are meaningless. What he is saying and what the Bible is saying, that humility is the key to joy. It's the key to freedom. It's the key to faithfulness. It's the key to self-control. It's the key to godliness, and it's the key to God's favor. But if humility isn't what we talked about earlier, if it, if it isn't thinking that you're a nobody, if it's not about telling ourselves, stop comparing yourself to the people around you. Stop being so proud. Stop judging. What is it, and how do we get it? The answer starts to unfold when we look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, most theologians, they think that these first couple verses, they're, they're one of the lines of one of the earliest hymns of the church. Isn't that really interesting? I mean, Paul's been talking about something crazy practical, right? He's talking about unity in the church. And then it's almost like he just, he just bursts out into song. He starts praising Jesus. Why would he do that? Because you can't actually work on humility directly. It's uh, what a lot of theologians have called a shy virtue. As soon as you notice that it's in the room, it's like it, it runs for cover and tries to duck out the back door, right? As soon as you start to think, man, I've think I'm getting more humble and you probably just in that moment just stopped as you became proud about your humility. If you want to grow in humility, you have to look somewhere else. You have to look to someone else. And Paul writes that even though Jesus was in the form of God, though he was literally equal with God in every single imaginable way, though he created, though he sustained, though he ruled everything there is, though his equality with God was worthy to be counted, though he was entitled to every service and privilege, verse 7 says he emptied himself. And isn't that interesting? We all have this empty quest for glory that ruins us. And he who had every right to glory, he emptied himself to save us. Not that in emptying himself, he became in any way less God, but he humbles himself by becoming a man. He emptied himself of all the privileges and entitlements of being God. And he became a servant. He took on flesh and he doesn't just take on flesh he doesn't just become a king or a ruler, right? He becomes the son of a common poor carpenter. And at each step in his life, he humbles himself completely. He was obedient to parents that he was infinitely wiser than. He was in submission to authorities and spiritual leaders. He was infinitely holier than. He sustained the bodies 
their whole lives through of the men who would conspire eventually to kill him. He gave the very breath to the men who shouted, crucify him. And he grew the tree up from the ground that he would one day hang and die on. Why would that God do that? Because of his unfathomable love. Because he, in his humility, he counted you and I more precious to himself than his own life. And if that doesn't melt your heart, I don't think that you understand what Christianity is about. I don't think that you understand the gospel. This doesn't make sense. Listen to the way that Charles Spurgeon puts it. I think this is incredible. How could our dear Redeemer have been brought any lower? How then can we be proud, stand at the foot of his cross, count the drops of blood by which you have been cleansed, look at his crown of thorns, observe his scourged shoulder, still gushing with crimson streams, see his hands and feet surrendered to iron spikes, see his entire entity subjected to mockery and scorn, and see his severe suffering, pain and upheaval to inner grief. If, after viewing all this, you do not lie prostrate on the ground before his cross, you have never seen it. If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. Instead, we will take the humble place of one who loves much because we have been forgiven much. Pride cannot exist at the foot of the cross. Because when we really grasp the cross, when we really see that in spite of everything, in spite of every reason why God might cast us aside, in spite of all of our heinous pride, that we are infinitely loved, that we are forever accepted, it changes us. When you see that he was cast out so that you could be brought in, he was forsaken so that you could rest assured that you never will be. You brought nothing to the table. Do you understand that? But praise God, nothing was exactly what you needed because Jesus himself brought everything. You see, humility comes only to those who know that they have nothing to offer God. Humility comes to those who understand that they never again have to be judged because Jesus was judged in their place so that God could be for you. Humility comes from being so lost in wonder that you are loved by God, that you lose track of yourself. You are truly freed to love God and to count others more significant than yourself. What will that day be like when we finally grasp that, when our, when our churches see that? I think we'll start to reflect that unity that Paul's describing here in the first couple of verses. When we've truly been moved by the sight of Jesus, the exalted one who humbled himself for you, you become humble. And a humble person sees that all that they have, their time, their money, their talents, their influence, their position, are meant to be used for others' good. A humble person, when sinned against, doesn't sin in return, but finds a way to serve, to bless, to challenge, and to encourage. A humble person never considers any act of service or request for help beneath his or her dignity. A humble person doesn't oversell or undersell their abilities, but offers them up to God for his glory and for others' benefit. A humble person isn't crushed when things fall apart or don't go their way, but acknowledges and rests under the sovereign grace of God. 
A truly humble person mourns over the sin that they find in their own lives, but they're nearly oblivious to their own spiritual growth and progress. A humble person isn't afraid of honor or responsibility, nor are they clamoring for it and consumed by it. And they're able to rejoice when someone else who is a worthy leader is chosen instead of them. A humble person asks for godly counsel and then submits to that counsel even when they don't agree with it because they trust the body of Christ and its wisdom more than they trust themselves. A humble person is in regular accountability with others, sharing their sins because they know that they can't walk the Christian life alone. They aren't afraid to share the deepest, darkest things in their hearts because they're not thinking about how it's going to come across. Their only concern is, how do I get more of Jesus? They're also not afraid to confront others in their sin or with the gospel because they're less concerned about having their sins thrown back in their face or what other people will think about them than they are about others' relationships with God and their well-being. At the end of his chapter on pride and mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes a humble person, and we're going to give you all a copy of that if you want it as we leave, but, but hear these words, okay? Do not imagine that if you, really, if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that he is, of course, a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. My friends, humility and true joy, they're found when we are lost in awe and worship at the magnificent love that Christ displayed for us on the cross. That God is for you if you are humble, because the humble's eyes are fixed on him. And when our eyes are fixed on Christ, they can't be curved in on ourselves. I know that you and I have a long way to go, but the more we lose ourselves in the wondrous mystery of the gospel of grace, the more we will unknowingly stop even thinking about ourselves altogether. So brothers, so sisters, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where God bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God, I pray that you would make us a humble people. I pray that you would make us a people who don't even think about our own reputation. God, don't think about what we have in comparison to other people or our abilities. But that we would be so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude at your great love for us, Lord, that we slowly but surely, day by day, stop thinking about ourselves altogether. Lord, we want to be a people 
who are so unified in our diversity that the world looks at us and can't understand and they have to figure out what's going on here, that you would reach the world through the unity of Christians. God, but we can't unless you break apart our pride. So Lord, humble us for you say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Our Jesus, we love you. We are overwhelmed at your grace and your kindness towards us. And we praise you. Amen. I want you to take just a minute and silently pray to yourselves, okay? And ask God that when you walk out these doors, that what I just preached it wouldn't fall on deaf ears, right? Because if you get humility, you get everything that the Bible promises. And if our hearts are, heightened, are hardened by pride, if Satan has his way with us, then we lose everything. So ask him to humble you. Ask for the strength to be able to endure and to follow him no matter the cost. So take just a minute.